Heavenly Father, oh, what a gift it is to gather together as women um, of the same church body, living life together and studying your word. Lord, it is hard work that we've been called to, but Lord, what glorious work it is that we get to talk about your truth and work it out together. Lord, I pray that this morning as we continue to look at these chapters that your truth would be proclaimed clearly, um, and if there were any unclearness or untruth that were to come out, that that would just fall on deaf ears. Lord, I pray that you would receive the glory through all of this. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so we're going to be flipping through these four chapters just a bit, nothing crazy. So if you want to open your lessons or just open your Bible so you can follow follow along as I work through it, you can go ahead and do that. Um, I'm going to start in chapter four, the very first three chapters, or not chapters, the first three verses, um, and those say this. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come along, come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So I think at first blush, the Israelites' little plan, it doesn't seem too bad. They're being defeated by their enemies. Um, So they go to something of God. And to be fair, to give them some credit, um, some incredible events in Israelite history um, had happened with the Ark of the Covenant around. Um, So it's not that outrageous of a thought that they would go to this um, immediately. But the problem was twofold, at least in my opinion. Number one, the Israelites did not seem to go to God and ask for guidance. They just saw a problem and said, here's how we're going to handle it. And then secondly, and y'all saw this in your homework, it's almost his vision God had given them for meeting with him in a way it wasn't intended. It's almost as if they're putting God's mark on their plan of action and assume that would lead them to victory because God doesn't lose, right? Overall, I think what we see here is a heart of arrogance, a heart that thinks they know best and will move forward without seeking God and using a provision um, he gave them to do their bidding. As our friend Dr. Davis said in his intro to 1 Samuel, the Israelites were not expressing faith, but superstition. They couldn't even seem to slow down enough to consider why they might be losing in this battle. Um, Their leadership from Hophni and Phinehas was corrupt, and nothing was being done about it. God had pronounced judgment against Eli, their ruling priest, two times just before. You would just think they might associate what's going on as their lack of turning to the Lord for guidance and obedience. They don't. Instead, they move forward with what they think might do the trick. This usage of the Ark of the Covenant is our first look so far in these chapters of Israelites' tendencies to worship other things over God, at least God himself. And as we keep reading, we'll see that they are indeed in the midst of much idol worship. In your homework, you were asked to look at other times in Scripture that we've taken provisions and used them for ways they weren't intended. This can be seen as a form of idolatry, taking good things and deciding this is how this should be used Again, a heart of arrogance, a heart of, no, God, I know this is what you wanted, but I'm going to use it this way. Does this heart of arrogance or idolatry feel at all familiar to you? This using of God's provision in a way that he didn't intend in order to advance your preferences or your plans? It does to me. 
These are some things that come to mind for me. Well, I'm going to read my Bible today because I know there's a lot of good stuff in there and that'll make me be a really good person. And then I'll be like a better coworker and a better friend and a better wife because I've, I've, I've read what I need to do. And then everyone's going to think really good about me and I'm not going to cause problems. And they're going to think I'm super spiritual and cool. A very what can God do for me kind of mentality. Um, or maybe I'm going to pray for these really specific things because I know that they're what are good and right for me and my family. Um, and surely the Lord's going to answer accordingly because that's what's right. Um, a very just not even considering that he may have a different answer to those prayers. Or how about this? I'll show up to church every Sunday. I'm going to get really involved in Sunday school. I'm going to get in a grace group. I'm going to come Wednesday night to Bible study. Um, and then I'm going to have all my best friends, and they're going to, like, think I'm so great. And they're going to affirm all the things that I do. They're going to be just like me. And life's going to be great. I'm going to have the best community ever. Um, all these things from the outside look like right and holy things. And before you start throwing stones and saying, well, they are, Anna, I know <laughs> they are. I want to clarify and affirm Reading God's word is necessary and valuable for the life of a believer. Praying to our Father and bringing our needs and desires to him very specifically is a good gift to be used. Making church and involvement there a priority. It's what we're called to do. We absolutely should be doing these things, and likely we should be doing them more. And these desires in and of themselves aren't inherently wrong necessarily, that the Israelites did. We can tend to take these wonderful provisions that God has given us to know him more, love him more, and serve him well for our own selfish desires. It's the motivation behind why we do them that's the problem. It's the heart of the matter. I think oftentimes we can get so disenchanted with spiritual disciplines because they aren't meeting the needs we think they should meet. And I think this is an indication that maybe our heart's in the wrong place. Instead of allowing the Lord to use his word to teach us more about himself and the way he designed us, trusting that he is transforming us day by day or bringing our prayers to him and submission to him with an open hand, trusting his will, or finding community that might be different than we expect, we decide we think we know, we know how things should go and do things our own way. And we don't just do this with the more spiritual things I think marriage is a good example, a good and precious gift from the Lord. Even that, we are tempted to make ultimate, whether that looks like longing for a marriage because you know it will make you so happy and fulfilled, or looking to your husband to meet your deepest needs and desires. It just won't work. It's not how God designed this provision he gave us. But back to those first examples. There's a very real chance on the same day that I go to my Bible hoping for a beautiful word about how to be the most excellent wife that I turn around and act unkindly to my husband and, don't, and forget how to engage with him. There's also a very real chance that God doesn't answer my prayers as I think he should or I wish he would. And there's a very real chance that I, though I show up to church all the time, I don't make all my bestest friends who think just like me and live life just like me and affirm all the decisions I'm making. But this doesn't mean God's not at work using even our wrong motivation to bring us closer to him. For the Israelites, using this provision God had given them did not lead to victory as they had planned. And I love what Dr. Davis said as he was introing this um, whole series, and I think it's worth repeating. Yahweh will disappoint you if it will lead you to see the kind of God he really is. 
I think that's something to consider when we face disappointment. Ask yourself, what could God be showing me about himself through all of this? We don't know what's best on our own, but God does. And one of his primary aims for us is to know more, and he uses even our schemes and our sin to show us that. As we continue towards the journey of the Ark of the Covenant, we will see how God uses even the arrogant hearts of the Israelites to show them himself more clearly despite their current defeat. So that was the heart of the Israelites. Um, We're going to move on to the heart of the Philistines. So the Israelites have been defeated despite their clever tactics. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. um, And now this Ark is about to go on quite the journey. um, And God's hand seems to be ever-present throughout this little journey. Throughout this journey, we get to see a little bit about the heart of the Philistines. And I think this insight into their heart serves as a great warning to us today. We're going to read in, verse, or in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. This is the, uh, the Philistines' reaction to when they find out that the ark is being brought into battle with, them, with the Israelites. It says, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to the Egyptians, which can deliver us up from the power of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They're afraid. They're afraid of this God that represents the Israelites. They've heard about him. They know a little bit about him, and it's not great for them. So immediately they go into a panic, an appropriate response, if you ask me. They should fear this God. But as we continue to read on, we'll see that they don't actually fear this God. As we know, the Philistines go on to win this battle, and they end up capturing the ark. So now this thing that they were afraid of, now they have seemingly defeated They take it to the house of Dagon, and this comical episode ensues where their God keeps falling at the Ark of the Covenant um, as if it's bowing to the real presence of the Lord. What a God they have that can't even stay standing upright. Not only does their God fail to stay upright in the presence of God, but the hand of God is heavy against the Philistines. God had caused tumors to break out everywhere the Ark went. The Philistines are panicked. People are being afflicted right and left. People are dying. They don't know what to do. And their answer is getting rid of the Ark of the Covenant. So they seek guidance from their lords and priests. Again, evidence that they don't truly love or truly fear the Lord, but even though they might look like it. They aren't seeking the Lord or turning to him. What really stuck out to me when reading through this whole episode is found in verse 6 of chapter 6. This is when the Philistine lords and priests are deciding what to do with the Ark and giving guidance to the people Um, and what to do. They say, why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? They saw what happened there. They knew not to harden their hearts against this God that was afflicting them. They knew what this God was capable of, and they seemed to know deep down that he was the one causing these tumors and the demise of Dagon. And yet, they do not bow to him, they do not seek him, and they move forward with what they think is best golden mice, and golden tumors. They come up with their own answer to the problem, and they send the cart away as if they can actually flee from the presence of the Lord. For a minute, they must be thinking, it worked. The cart went back. It's with Israel. We're good. But I think the end of chapter 7 gives us some helpful insight here. It helps us see where God stands with the Philistines who have refused to submit to him. After going and Israel again, the Philistines are defeated. Verse 13 says, 
the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. They were still God's enemies. They had not actually escaped God's presence and judgment. It's clear that the Philistines had not had some great awakening where they truly feared the Lord. They did not turn to him in submission. They just did what, did what they thought was best to appease this God and get through the tumors. But they were wrong. The, the Lord's hand was still against him, them. I said earlier that I think this, this account it serves as a warning for us today. I think it's possible to fear God to a degree without actually fearing him. I think this first serves as a warning to us personally. I think we should consider if our hearts are reflective of the Philistines. Do we actually fear God as our creator, ruler, and king? Do we fear him in a way that leads us to submission? Or do we fear him as the Philistines did? Then I think it can also serve as a warning for us and that we should be aware that there are people out there who look like they might fear God, at least to a degree, for a time, but they don't actually know him. In our quote-unquote religious American culture, I think we have a lot of prominent people who may seem like they fear God to a degree, or at least recognize that there's a God, but their hearts are not in submission to him. We should always take heed and proceed with caution anytime we look, to look towards public religious figures. While the Philistines didn't claim to be God's people, um, there still were moments that you might think, hmm, maybe they do fear this God. They were offering him sacrifices and stuff. Maybe they do want to honor him. But really, they're only concerned with protecting themselves. May we not follow other people that fall into that camp. A true fear of God should bring us to our knees in submission to him, and a true fear of God should lead us to repentance, turning from our own way. Now, the last thing we'll discuss as it pertains to the heart of the matter in these four chapters is what happens to be our key verse of the week. What kind of heart does God desire of his people? What kind of heart is he producing in us? Um, chapter 7, verse 3 reads like this. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your heart towards the Lord. And serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. The Lord wants our heart. He wants our hearts turned toward him, serving him and him alone. And we see how the Israelites' hearts seem to have softened in this moment. Before, they were taking things into their own hands, making their own plans. Now they come, for, come before the Lord, desperate for him to show up, asking for mercy and turning from their earthly gods. Their hearts have moved to repentance a genuine repentance that is more than just sadness over messing up, but also a changing of behavior. The text says that they put away their idols that they had been worshiping. Again, our dear friend, Dr. Davis, he says, they dangle by, speaking of the Israelites, they dangle by the mere mercy of Yahweh. At the heart of Israel's experience of mercy stands her own helplessness and utter lack of resources. And something else I think is worth noting in light of all this just before this verse 3 that we just read, the text says, From the day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years. This struck me when reading through this account. Israel had lost the covenant. They were mourning over it. Literally, people died over it. Um, so they're in this just time of distress and despair, and what do we do? And then we read just for 20 years, we read just all later that they're being called to take down their idols and turn to the Lord. Meaning, 
All this time, they had continued on in their idol worship. 20 plus years, they seemingly continue on in their idol worship while they have been clearly disobeying God. It seems to me that at least in their desperation to get this Ark of the Covenant back, that they would, it just might occur to them, maybe we should take our idols down. <laughs> but that's not what they do. It takes 20 plus years and Samuel speaking very clearly on behalf of the Lord for the Israelites to see what the Lord desires of them. And it is so easy to have that attitude of, what are y'all thinking? 20 years just ignoring how you know that you're supposed to be living. But then I'm reminded that it's me too. Idolizing different things in my life and continuing on in sin even when I know it's wrong. And then the Holy Spirit stops me in my tracks and leads me to repentance. And I'm left wondering how I ever could have been so bullheaded in my sin for so long. We are so slow and short-sighted. We need continual reminders and wake-up calls and just God coming in over and over again to remind us of who we are in our sin. And God is gracious in that. He continues to remind us and continues to convict us and continues to show us mercy and grace. He does this in so many ways, provisions, through provisions that he has given us for his good and our, for our good and his glory. Time in his word, time in communion with him in prayer, time with his people in church. I told you, these are good provisions, good things, things that produce godly conviction and sanctification. Samuel set up a stone to mark what God had done, how God had brought his people to repentance. He gave them something tangible to look back on and remember, and we can do this too. We're not very good at it, or at least I'll say I'm not very good at it. Y'all might be really great at it, um, but I think we can learn from Samuel in this. We need to slow down enough write out what God has shown us about himself, remember what he has been showing us through the years about himself. Tell a friend when you're forgetting, they can remind you, remember when you learned this about God? Might we be better at doing that with each other? In these four chapters, we clearly see how the Lord cares deeply about our hearts and how he is etching away at them. At the start, Israel thinks they've got it figured out, but they don't, not even close. But the Lord uses even their hearts of arrogance to move forward in his plan for redemption. He doesn't miss a beat, but continues on. This account shows us more of the heart of God, how he can express his holiness and his judgment, and also his mercy and his grace for, towards his people specifically. Oh, how we do not deserve the patience and grace that he shows us. It's moving to me and misplaced affections to guide me and lead me and work in my life despite my wanderings and misplaced affections. He continues to show me who he is, and he continues to etch away at my heart bit by bit, because he has promised to. Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If you are trusting in Jesus Christ and his salvation, your heart is already his. But while we live here on this earth, in these fleshly bodies, your heart is being pulled in so many different directions. But we are safe in Jesus. He has promised to complete this good work he began. So take heart. Throughout the struggle to keep your heart turned toward the Lord, the Holy Spirit is there, guiding you, teaching you, convicting you, 
and our Father in heaven is sovereign over it all. I want to close with a quote from Tim Keller that kept coming to mind as I worked through this study this week. He said this about our struggle with idols. The human heart is an idol factory that takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety and fulfillment if we attain them. If Tim Keller was right, and I believe that he was, that our hearts are idol factories, then that must mean our life should be marked by repentance. Always coming back to the Lord as the Israelites did, asking for forgiveness and turning away from our sin. It sounds a bit discouraging sometimes to me, um, if I'm honest. Will I ever get to the point where I can stop repenting of my trust in earthly things? Hopefully over time I will see growth, hopefully, but here on earth, I will consistently be fighting off other affections of my heart. And that's okay, because I have a Father in heaven who loves me and is for me. I have a Son who is interceding on my behalf even now. And I have the Holy Spirit living even through my failures and flaws, etching away at my heart, always drawing me closer to him even through my failures and flaws. How kind is our God. May we learn from the Israelites May we take heed of the Philistines, and may we, even today, this morning, turn from our idols of the day and turn our hearts to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, it's true that our hearts are pulled in so many different directions each day. I wake up um, and want to satisfy deep desires with other things that cannot do it. Um, Lord, would you forgive us of that? Would you show us where we are blind to our idols? Would you show us where we are putting things above you and help us to turn away from them? It's only with the work of the Spirit that we are able to do that, and so we ask for that boldly. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it directs us and transforms us. Lord, would we continue on in this study for your glory, um, and would you use it to make us more like you each week? We pray for all these things in your son's name. Amen.